And it's been a long time coming, but here we are, and welcome back to Latimer Aldor with the trials and tribulations of Net Zero. <laughs> Thanks, John. Yeah, it's a long time, and uh, it's good to talk again. When we spoke last time, it was the early part of the summer, I think. We're just yeah. getting used to uh, sunshine, a bit of sunshine, and I think there might even have been a little mini heat wave coming along. After a very cold spring, I think that was I think that was our point. We were just beginning to get the idea that maybe summer was going to come and we weren't forever going to be stuck in, in gloom and doom. And at that time, we were looking around and what we were starting to see was that the momentum towards the idea of net zero that had been building along and, and tru truckling along for three or four years, certainly in the UK, since the, the ideas were passed into law in 2018, that that momentum was starting to um, fade away a bit. There was one or two little bits of bad news coming. Well, the some, good news is that... Some cracks in the in the infrastructure, perhaps? Some... Well, cracks in the infrastructure, cracks in the turbines, cracks... Cracks in the political will and cracks in, in almost every bit you can talk about. Uh, and maybe what we like to look at is, is some of the things that have um, those, those cracks as we go along. But the good news since then is that those cracks have widened and no longer, it's, it's fair to say there doesn't appear to be anywhere a momentum towards net zero. And almost wherever you look, the momentum is going away from net zero. And what I thought we might like to do is just talk a little bit about, about what those things are. And you can then watch, if you watch the news and if and so forth, and you can see that that process, to my mind, will continue unless there's something hugely drastic like the climate catastrophe that's so often forecast and never actually appears happening. Yeah. And basically, that's not going to happen either. So... Um, yeah, I mean we've had we've had the usual suspects since we last spoke. I think um, I think Maui hadn't happened um, the last time we'd actually spoke. But yeah, you know, it's amazing how wildfires um, in in the summer occur so often. Yeah, you'd almost think, and 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 we. I don't think we'd had the fires in roads either, but we we might even talk a little bit about that later on. Or, or Canada, indeed. Or Canada, yeah. You'd almost think these wildfire things happened every year, and that you know Mother Nature was kind of used to them. Surely not. Surely not. Surely not. <laughs> Surely not, Latimer. Surely not. <laughs> but they are. So, so I thought I'd start today, if I might, just with a little bit of research I've been doing in the last couple of days. That gives me my sort of overall theme, which is net zero is doomed to fail. Oh, right. Oh, yes. Now. You've, and put, I, you've put your cards out there on the stall. You know, you're uh, going to have to end that uh, one. So let me let me back up those that, that big event. And it's pretty simple stuff. It's pretty simple statistics that I'd sort of known about, but hadn't really looked at before mm -hmm. uh, until a couple of days ago. And if you followed me on Twitter, you'll have seen a couple of things I put up there. Yeah. The main thing that we have to understand is the demographics of the Earth's population. And it is now true that over half the people of the world live in Asia. Okay. Didn't used to be. Yeah. But it's quite... And, 
and they are now the dominant power in terms of people. Okay. And when you look at carbon emissions and the whole purpose of all the stuff of net zero and climate diplomacy and all that is to reduce those carbon emissions, if you look at the graphs, they're pretty clear. Most places are sort of ticking along doing about the same with carbon emissions, maybe going up a bit, maybe going up, down a bit, but keeping roughly the same, mm. apart from Asia. Yeah. And Asia, carbon emissions are booming. Okay. And I first thought it was just China where it was booming, but it's not. I've done the work, and it's six out of the seven biggest countries in Asia, the exception being Japan, all have emissions booming. They've been booming for 20 years. There's no sign of them ever slowing down, and there's no sign they're ever going to think about slowing them down. Okay. And the reason behind that, with a little bit of work, is that actually over in Asia, they don't care about climate change. They don't even think it's a problem. And if they don't think it's a problem, they're sure as heck not going to cut their emissions to try and fix this problem they don't think they've got. Yeah. What that shows us is that what we've all instinctively known, this all this stuff about climate is a hugely Western idea. A hugely Western religion, if you want to think of it. No, and no, it just makes no traction in the, in the Asian countries. Okay, if I push back slightly, I mean, China yeah. talks about, you know, recycling. Yeah. And of course you do. That they're not making, uh, are not contributing yeah. to things, but are you saying yeah. that they're, they're just playing lip service? Well, talk is cheap. You know, you can, I can go to a conference and say, yeah, 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 as soon as I get home, I'm going to give up drinking or be a better person or pray more or whatever it is. But I'm not going to do it when I get back home. Uh, <laughs> to be honest, if China doesn't do it, who the heck's going to tell them they've got to? <laughs> yeah. What about India? Because they've um, they've recently become like a, a, a full-blown, you know, um, we're going to the moon type space-faring nation yeah. now. Well, same thing with India. In India, in fact, in terms of population, is now slightly bigger than China. They're both yeah. um, 1.4 million people, a billion people. So between the two of them, they're three eighths, just about three eighths of the world. And right. India as well makes lip service a little bit to reducing its emissions, but the emissions continue going up, and there's no sign they're ever going to. Part of the reason for that is that. Fossil fuels are a very convenient way of making power. Yeah. They're relatively quick to do. They can easily you can store them, which is more than you can do with any with any renewables. Um, and they're reliable and work twenty four seven. So and, and they're in demand, and they still will be in demand. And inadvertently, by imposing sanctions on the Russian state, we've probably made it easier for China to get more access to fossil fuels. Yeah, sure, absolutely. One, yeah. of, one of the reasons um, and, and, and one of the things behind China's going particularly for coal is they can get coal over land and they've just built this enormous great railway, 1,200 miles long, to, to transport coal. Yeah. What they don't have, I'm led to believe, is oil. And yeah. oil has to come in by tankers. And tankers have to come in over the seas, and in the Pacific, there's a thing called the United States Navy, which still worries them a little bit. Yeah. But there's no United States Navy 
on their 1200 mile overland railway tracks bringing in the coal to power the power their power stations yeah and they're, and they're trying to build uh they're trying to build a railway that ultimately goes all the way to the gulf yeah they could do that and you know they've got the resources to be able to do such a thing um and they don't not you know it's not like hs2 where you spend 15 years arguing about who can go over whose fence you know, if they, they decide to build a railway, they're going to build a railway. We might not think that's a very democratic way of doing it, but it's probably what's going to happen. So China, China I mean, we think of China as a, a massive industrial powerhouse, but it's it's really ultimately at, at the when you when you come right down to it, it's it's still very much an agricultural and quite yeah. a poor society. Yeah. So so you can understand why China is wanting to use cheap cheap fuel in order to yep. bring itself up because everyone aspires to be better than they are. And if you can do it cheaper rather than spending... You know... Well, that's exactly right, John. And that is that is the key point. People want to be rich and prosperous like we in the West have been for the last 50, 100 years. Mm-hmm. They don't care, even if it was true that that means sea level in 100 years is going to be one foot higher. If they even think about that problem or that that scenario, they'll think it was more than worth it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We yeah, we so have what, to what we have to get ourselves in the mindset of the poor people of the world, the poorer people of the world who want to be like us. Not that we the rich people want to show other rich people how virtuous we are. Because that concept just doesn't apply. Yeah. If, if you were, it's, 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 somebody once said it rather well. He said, if you're worrying about paying your bills and feeding your family at the end of the week, you sure as heck ain't worried about the end of the world. Yeah. So so what about Africa? Are they still cooking with, you know, wildebeest dung? Or oh, well, inter- very, very interesting. I went to a very interesting lecture by a guy called, I think, Jeff King um, back in the House of Lords a few weeks ago. And he's produced a couple of papers about the real thing in Africa that nobody actually gets hold of is because their electricity supplies are so poor yeah. in general. I mean, they're one or two countries that have a decent supply, but in general, it's it's extremely poorly served by electricity. Then people survive on charcoal. Yeah. The same stuff that we use to, to do our barbecues with is, is the, the staple for cooking and so forth yeah. uh, in Africa. And to make the charcoal, you chop you chop down the trees. When people say there is deforestation in Africa, yeah, there's deforestation in Africa because they're chopping down the trees to make the charcoal. Simple as that. There's no no great subtlety about it. Okay. We let them have and and our local you know greenery people very very down on anything to do with coal. If we let them use their own coal, they could have electricity and they wouldn't need the charcoal and they wouldn't need to chop down their own forests. Now, Jeff's uh, produced two papers on it and I'll perhaps perhaps afterwards give you the references to how you can download them. But he's a very compelling speaker and he tells a, a very good story of something that is so simple. You know, we, we, we have electricity 24-7. In Johannesburg, they have electricity four hours a day in the biggest, one of the biggest... Uh, capitals in South Africa, and they are relatively uh, biggest cities in Africa, and they are relatively well off by comparison with their other African compatriots. 
And and then we, the the Green parties in in Europe, come along and say, oh, you naughty African, you've got to have a wind farm or a solar power or something. And you wonder why the Africans think, well, actually, I'm not really too bothered about this. Yeah. Well, they, they seem to be pushing back a bit. I mean, they've, they've yeah. they're starting to fling France out. I mean, Niger, Niger has effectively told France to foxtrot Oscar. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, that that then gives France a headache because that's where they got all their yellow cake for all their yeah. nuclear power stations. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a much more complicated world than fossil fuels are bad and we've got to stop doing all of that stuff to save the world from emissions. And that's one of the reasons why net zero is going to fail, because at the global level, not enough people are bothered about doing it. Okay. So, so what about back at home? I mean, I see, I see our own, you know, Rishi Sunak has uh, has delayed the implementation schedule for net zero. He's given us a well, little more break. Well, sort of. Um, let, me, let me just go back. A few months and, and there was there was the watershed moment in the UK when, if you remember, Boris Johnson, the ex-Prime Minister, resigned his seat in Parliament. Mm-hmm. And that meant there had to be what we call a by-election. By-election is just a local election to replace yeah. the MP. And the general state of politics in UK at the time was such that it was considered it was going to be a walkover for the opposition Labour Party because the Tories of which Johnson was a, was a, was the leader were were much disliked rightly or wrongly they were out of favor with the populace but lo and behold the the Tory candidate won and he basically won on an anti-green platform in opposition to some proposals from the the London mayor which basically was was trying to ban people from driving older cars within the city within London, um, yeah, yeah. and that opposition was sufficiently good. That his opposition was sufficiently popular among ordinary people that he won the vote against what all the political uh, commentators and, and probably the politicians themselves thought was a was a walkover for Labour. Yep, and that kind of focused a few people's attention and one person it focused the attention of was indeed the, the current prime minister Rishi, Rishi Sunak who said hmm, maybe this green stuff isn't the perpetual vote winner we've all assumed it is mm. and he made some changes they are relatively minor changes to the UK's timetable for net zero but the important point in my perspective is that they were changeable at all yeah. So once you've made a change once and said we'll delay this measure by five years or whatever it was, well, mm. there's nothing to say you can't do it again and again, and you can delay or change or alter other measures as you wish. It's you moved have... from being this immutable plan that has to be yeah. done to the what's convenient at the time. That's just, uh, it's just like when you're in the pub, once you've had one pint, you know, the next one's easier. <laughs> oh, don't tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, I know all about it. But yes, it, th- that's exactly right. Once you've lost your virginity the second times in there, <laughs> and third times are great. <laughs> to, to 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 give you some to give you some credit for your recent happiness. Once you've scored that first goal against a higher league team, 
the rest just seems to keep coming, doesn't they? Didn't they just? Wasn't wasn't it great? Yeah, yeah. Jack Barham was on fire on Saturday, as was Laurent Tolage. I was a bit. Um, I'd seen Laurent two weeks before, and I'd asked him to get a hat trick in a game, and he didn't. He only got two, so I was a bit disappointed with him. But he got two on Saturday as well. Two but, yeah. seven, I believe. <laughs> two out of seven, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a that's a time for another day. For those who don't know, we're talking about uh, my team, Aldershot's great victory at Swindon Town in the FA Cup on Saturday. Well, I had the honour to be present, and uh, it was one of the great days of Aldershot history, Aldershot football history. We be, we beat a much better, supposedly a much better team, and we didn't beat them. We massacred them. <laughs> um, but that was only one part of the net zero changes that we saw because I think the most significant one was where they the government started to discover that not only were they able to move around the laws what they couldn't do was make people do things and let me try and explain one of the one of the key strategies of net zero in the UK is to rely on wind power we're going to get rid of all that horrible, nasty fossil fuel, and we're going to use wind. And particularly because we're an island stuck in the middle of a relatively windy part of the world, we're going to use wind power offshore. Mm-hmm. And how this is going to be done was is to auction off the rights to build wind, wind, wind turbines, windmills, whatever you want to call it, in the middle of the sea, and we will guarantee to you a buyback price, what they call a strike price for a minimum strike price for the electricity you generate. Yeah. And that all sounds great and wonderful. And there's sort of, you could think that that's at least one way of doing it. It comes um, less middle if people don't uh, want to pay for the. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but let, let's go, go a little bit further. And so every year for the last three or four years, they've had these annual auctions and people have been eager. Wind power operators eager to get, you know, one block of land that they can, you know, put put the wind turbines on a block of sea, more to the point. Well, yeah, a bit of coast. A piece of coast. Coast. A piece of coast. A piece of coast or a piece of offshore piece of coast. Yeah. Yeah. And and for the last Five or six years, wind power operators have been said, telling us all, well, we're the cheapest power there is, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're so much cheaper than fossil fuels, you shouldn't even think of anything else. We are the greatest, et cetera, et cetera. Well, two things happened. One, it became fairly apparent when you look at the accounts that nobody in the wind power business is making any money. Um, several of the companies are in deep financial problems and, and may not survive as in their current form but the uk government i think maybe even unknowingly said took in what the wind power farms had said about their prices and said okay boys this year we're going to offer you the strike price of exactly what you say it is uh, you know low cost wind power fine we'll offer you whatever it is 40 quid a, a ton or something and how many of you are going to sell it to us at that price? And the answer was none. 
Nobody wanted to sell at that price. So the auction, the process for building out these wind farms was a complete failure. It had no, no takers whatsoever. Yeah. And that's quite a shock because one, if you can't persuade people to actually go and build the windmills that's going to provide the wind that is going to keep your your uh, electricity going, your your strategy, such as it is, is in tatters. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and, it's not, and it's not only in the UK. Yeah. Something similar happened. They did uh, off Louisiana coast in the Gulf of Mexico. There was a similar auction, and again, there were no takers. And New Jersey to develop and off New Jersey, even when a an operator was previously contracted to build some power, some some equipment as one of the big ones to keep the northeast of the United States going, they have pulled out. They've said, sorry, we cannot continue on this contract. And that's cost them a hundred million dollars just in fines for not completing their contract and the reason for that is they can't make money if they continued so losing 100 million dollars mm. actually for them was the better deal than continuing yeah. and that all says that this stuff about wind power being cheap and reliable and all that is falling apart and if no, that I, falls apart, I, th I think you're right and and let's remember you know I think it was our last episode. We went through some of the the efficiencies of these different power plants. Oh, yeah. And solar's around about 32 33%. I think wind power's about 45%, which is kind of equivalent with coal. Mm -hmm. And then gas was up about 60-odd percent. Yeah. And then nuclear at 96%. It seems yeah. a no-brainer, you know. Well, nuclear's, nuclear's a no-brainer for some stuff, but nuclear's only good if you go for the strategy that says everything has to be electric yeah yeah right well let's move on to the sort of next bit where where that's in well, some before trouble we, before we move on i heard today about a south coast solar panel manufacturer or company that had gone bust and, oh right um, that one and i think they're they're owing plymouth council i think it's plymouth um, five million pounds. Uh, <laughs> well, well, most councils in the UK are bust anyway, so they'll just be yeah. more bust then, won't they? Yeah, and, and I think over 2,000 people lost their jobs or something like that. Right. Not a good one. Well, Plymouth, I would think Plymouth Hoe would be a very nice place for solar panels. Horrible place to put them. They'd be unsightly, but it would be a very good place to pick up the sun. <laughs> I've been there once or twice. So... But, like I say, the whole strategy revolves around wind power and the 100% electrification of the entire country by 2050, which is now just 26 years away. Um, and starting with electric vehicles. Um, and strange enough, that's just not happening. The idea that everybody in the country is going to dash out and buy an EV is not happening. The hype is there that, you know, everybody wants an EV, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at the registrations of what people actually buy, only about a quarter of them are EVs at the moment. People still buy conventional petrol diesel engine cars. 
at least when they're using their own money. And the reason is they're just not attractive enough as products themselves for the average motorist. Yeah. They might be they might be made a little bit more attractive by tax fiddles and so forth. But at the end of it, people don't drive tax fiddles. People don't drive subsidies. They want a nice car that they're comfortable with. And an EV does not fit that for 90% of the people. The reason is charging them is difficult. Insurance seems to be an increasing problem that and crash damage, any crash damage seems to just about end up in a write-off. So for the ordinary person in the street, maybe you know a, a nurse or a, a dental nurse or a you know somebody who works in a shop who wants a nice cheap car, an EV is way beyond anything they can ever think of affording, not even 26 years away from now. Yeah. So that is flopping in the UK. And I hear in America, in the States, it's even worse. And I think I heard that Ford Motor Company lose $35,000 on every EV that they sell. And that is just non-sustainable, unless you can get the price down by $35,000, which seems impossible. This is, you know, this is the way to bankruptcy for the people who are making the damn cars. And if all yeah. the car, if, if the wind operators have gone bankrupt because they can't sell their product, and the EV manufacturers have gone bankrupt because nobody wants to buy their cars, then it doesn't matter how much legislation the governments pass and how much coercion they do. Those products are not going to be there for people to use. Yeah. And if they're not there for people to use, then your strategy has failed. And that's my kind of basic thesis of why net zero will fail is at the global level, there aren't enough people who care about it. And at the local level, it's just not a practical proposition in real people really doing things, making this stuff. You can do the you know economic models of everything, but if there's nobody actually in the workshops bashing the metal, on the sea putting up the turbines it doesn't matter what your economic models say it matters that people aren't doing it yeah and of course there's the other issue with vvs and that they they do seem to struggle when it comes to catching fire sometimes well don't they yes yes Um, that that's uh I, i don't know how bad really that problem is but i did notice there's a I think a little of, Norwegian biggest... ferry company that says no EVs on our ferry. And they are yeah. one of the most eco-friendly uh, ferry companies from everything else I've read that there is. But they're saying, and I, if, if well, they're I as the... bad as they say, I would hate mm-hmm. to be on the Eurotunnel with one of those car transporters, with one of those, with a, an EV fire going on. Thanks very much. Yeah, because they don't go out quickly. You know, yeah, the, well, they don't go out at all. That's the point. They keep on going for several weeks, even sometimes. Uh, you've got to wait until the lithium runs out. Um, yeah. And I think China in particular is having a lot of problems. And, and you know, I'm, I'm not casting any aspersions on Chinese build quality. The, you know, the Chinese, the Chinese usually tend to copy Western ideals. Um, yeah. And they don't normally make a bad product. I think yeah, it's sometimes... 
when they try and make it for their home market, they try and cut costs more. And I think they're suffering from that problem in China because apparently they're getting quite a lot of EV, local EV files from locally, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chinese EVs. If, if you want to sell the mass market in China, the, the, the reality is that Chinese people are not rich people, so you can't sell at yeah. a high price. It's Exactly. Uh, where I live here in the Thames Valley, in the, in one of the most affluent parts of Europe, we have quite a lot of Teslas and so forth. But then I've just read that you know we also have the highest house prices in the UK, and so yeah. it is a it is an affluent place, and people can afford some people can afford them. And then the thing is, we haven't kept the infrastructure up in order to support this because exactly. while it kicked off fairly reasonably slowly and infrastructure was going along quite well we've now got to the point where there are too many evs for the infrastructure that's available oh yeah exactly it's great if you've got a drive a private driveway mm -hmm. and yeah. you can afford you know you can you can charge up overnight uh, in your private driveway but if you haven't got that if you live in a block of flats um yeah. very likely you've got no way where to charge apart from the public charges and there aren't anywhere near enough of those. No, no, there isn't. You can also just think of, you know, if you say, well, you know, we'll put them in motorway service stations. You don't have to be a genius to work out. What, well, if I go to a motorway service station with, with our petrol car, mm. I can put a full tank in in five minutes at the pump and pay for it. So I, yeah. and I can be, you know, in and out within that five minutes. If, however, I'm going to stay there for two hours, to charge up my EV, which sounds like the sort of reasonable times we're talking about, yeah. then clearly we need 12 times, 24 times as much space in the motorway service areas just to accommodate the cars stationary being charged up. Yeah. Yeah, so that takes away a lot of the countryside. And one of the reasons we're supposed to be doing all this stuff is to preserve the countryside. Well, we just concreted it over to put in EV charging. And then, then you've got to think about. I mean, I, I can't see, I can't see electric tractors being viable. You know, no, nope. no, nope. nor electric HGVs. And if you want, if you actually want to um, have fresh food in your supermarket, somewhere somebody's got to move HGV-sized stuff up and down the motorways every night. Yeah. Or maybe you don't. Maybe you say that's fine. We'll go. We'll all go local, and therefore we don't need to go in. We could be even. Decide we're in 15-minute cities. Well, that's great. But if you're in a 15-minute city, that means the only things you can get are within 15 minutes. Yeah. And if, you, if you don't have stuff being brought to you, you can't go and get it. So Exactly. So all those fresh vegetables that you'd like to have in Kensington, well, I don't know where you're going to get them. Yeah. <laughs> They're not going to appear by magic. I have no mango for my toast. Uh, sorry, I have no avocado for my toast. <laughs> the, 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 classic, the classic squeal of the Waitrose shopper who's not having a good day. What? No, <laughs> no. You run out of quinoa. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. If you, want, if you wish to have a lifestyle, you know, that people enjoy, then sadly... Other people have to do stuff and move things around and all the grubby bits that if you're a solicitor or a lawyer or an accountant, you're kind of insulated from and you can quite happily go off and do green protests. Yeah. 
But under, underneath it all, there's this kind of whole infrastructure that makes it all work. And, and transforming that to all electric wind powered is really way more difficult than anybody ever thought it would be. And to my mind, it's just not a practical thing. What I think you'll see is that governments will continue to pay lip service to it. There'll never be a government who says, oh, sod it, we're not doing net zero. Mm -hmm. But the paying lip service to it and actually doing it will be two different things, a bit like we started talking about with China way back when. Yeah. And and you can see you can see that the mood of the population is very much not with just stop oil, you know. Yeah. Oh, absolutely not. Uh, or, or even more watered down versions of greenery now. I'm. Uh, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I don't understand the just stop oil thing. Their whole their whole premise is ill thought out. And I know it's I know technically it's just stop issuing new oil and gas licenses, but. Oil's oil's more than just a fuel. You know, it's used in so many other products, yeah. from from food to medicine. You know, it, it's just used in absolutely everything. So it's more than it's more than a fuel. And I can't see us finding a replacement for oil because I mean, even Lego, like like great company Lego, they tried and tried and tried to to make a, a Lego brick um, out of a non-oil based plastic. All right. And ultimately, they called it quits because they said, we can't do it, or we can do it, but it doesn't work as well, and it costs something like six times as much. So oh, it's just, just, yeah. Yeah. So even yeah. Lego have said, no, we can't do it. We're just going to stick with our oil-based plastic. I think all the, the, the answer to, the, to your question is... is there is no sort of intellectual rigor to any of this stuff. It's it, they're all doomsday cults, and people like doomsday cults. And people like doomsday cults where they can be on the telly and say, "Look, Mum, I've smashed a painting or something." Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you see that the one I really, really thought was hilarious was? Do you remember they had a was it Lesmes in the, one of the theatre productions in the West End got disrupted by the. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the just stop oil people and four of them got nicked and are going to trial and one of them asked the judge if her trial could be yeah. delayed because she was out flying off to India for a holiday I think not young lady <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah the judge was far too polite to say what I think you and I were both thinking but he basically said no you must turn up for this but the fact is, they were flying, would be flying in oil-powered aeroplanes to get to India and back. So, yeah, of course, it would. Yeah, it's just it, it, it it's it's Tristan and Arabella have a nice gap year with um, lots of excitement. What yeah, is interesting, however, go on. is that Just Stop Oil were funded for many years by a guy called Dale Vince. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Dale Vince is the founder of Ecotricity, yes. uh, a sort of green power company. Before, haven't we? Yeah, we've heard of them before. Yeah. He was also the or was still also the owner of Forest Green Rovers, the football team that had a spectacular rise up through the, the leagues and is now having a spectacular fall back down through them. Um, and he has decided that funding Just Stop Oil 
is actually a bad investment. So he's withdrawn his money. Oh. And I've got a funny feeling that that will be the end of Just Stop Oil, that we won't hear any much more about it. Yeah. Because without a lot of money sloshing around in it, then it's not so much fun for the people who are and, recruited to work for it. And Roger Hallam, he got, he's, uh, he got raided in the early hours of the morning and arrested. So he had quite a lot to do with uh, the uh, the running. Of, well, allegedly, he may have had quite a lot to do with the running of Just Stop Oil. And, you know, oh, right. I didn't know that bit. But, yeah, yeah. they're... They're all just falling apart, and and what will happen is it will just fade away, and yeah, yeah, I we'll, think it will. We'll, we'll carry on with our lives. In the UK, we will be relatively impoverished because I can't quite see that we're going to be digging up coal and doing coal power stations again. Yeah, there would be a huge political row about starting fracking again though i've got a feeling eventually it will come so, uh, so the thing that gets me though is so the thing that gets me is i remember fighting against miners in 1980 odd right because we were stopping mining and it was the yeah. conservative government that were the bad guys yeah and the labor government wanted to keep on mining yeah it's, how things change <laughs> exactly exactly isn't that funny that you know the 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 whole purpose of of left-wing politics in those days was to keep mining open and is now uh to make sure it never never opens up again weird so who are the bad guys the miners or the the or mrs thatcher who closed it interesting oh, I think ultimately, if we look back at history, we can always say it was the government as the bad guys. No matter who the government are, they're no, all really true. Thank you, Latimer, for that on the trials and tribulations of Net Zero. It certainly seems we have quite a few of them to look at, and we may return to this very topic in the near future. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I, th I think this is this will be an ongoing slow car crash as net zero collapses around our ears and, and watch this space. And it, and if you're interested in the topic, just um just keep your eyes on the usually the environment pages in, in most of the big national papers, the Guardian, Telegraph, uh, the Times, they are all starting to report on this stuff nowadays. Yeah. Uh, um, and and it's almost universally bad news for the net zero Easters. So there's there's always something encouraging there. There you go. Thanks again, Latimer. Thank you. Great. Okay. Cheers, buddy.